Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're in the middle of National Poetry Month. A poet could hardly ask for a more visible podium than a presidential inauguration. Since January 20th, 23-year-old Amanda Gorman has become known to millions around the world after reading her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris. In 2013, Richard Blanco was the poet at President Obama's second inaugural ceremony. He was the first Latino the first immigrant, and the first gay person to serve as inaugural poet. Later this hour, we'll listen back to our 2019 conversation about his book, How to Love a Country. Kevin Galiz of Dad's Garage Comedy Improv Theater has produced a comedic film featuring adult actors with special needs. How to Ruin the Holidays addresses real-world adult issues that are part of disabled people's lives and does so with laughter. From an Oscar-nominated film, a sassy saxophonist with soul. As an art form, jazz has been notoriously slow to include women instrumentalists, but Tia Fuller is working to change the situation and see that women receive the long overdue recognition they deserve. She is a composer, jazz saxophonist, Berkeley School of Music professor, and plays the music for the character of Dorothea Williams in the Pixar film Soul. Fuller is with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. You are so warm and effusive. Dorothea is so reserved and imperious. You are not Dorothea, are you? You know, there are certain parts of my personality and character where I am Dorothea. <laughs> I think it's more so toward like the balancing of self, uh, not towards other people. I really, I grew up in a very warm, supportive, nurturing environment. And so generally that's where I like to function. But uh, when it comes down to like um, the seriousness of, of my career or getting jobs done and, and my professional nature, there's a certain element in there that, that can, it can go there if need be, but usually not. <laughs> Well, Dorothy is the consummate artist and the one Joe Gardner always dreamed of playing with. Pixar characters always seem so lifelike. 
Would you take us behind the scenes of how you worked with Pixar to bring Dorothea's character to life? Ironically enough, the character was already predetermined before I got there, which was interesting. The thing that they did the molding of is really revamping and shaping her physical character to to mirror more of mine. And then also all of the elements, musical elements. So like my fingerings are exactly the fingerings. Well, her fingerings that that you see Dorothea um, playing are exactly the same fingerings that I'm playing. So it's true to each and every artist. And then also like my entire setup on my saxophone, they have Dorothea playing alto. Um, they, they changed everything on my saxophone, including the gra- engraving and the, um, the ligature placement, which holds the, the reed on the mouthpiece. Like all of that is mirrored to my saxophone, which was really cool. And, you know, ironically enough, I was watching the movie with one of my best friends who comes to my my concerts all the time and is an avid supporter. And she was like, Tia, look at how she's holding the saxophone. That's how you sit on a stool or the way that you like adjust the saxophone mouthpiece. That's what you do. That looks like you. So it was, it's really cool how they mirrored the microcosms of our personalities and our movements to really manifest through, through the characters. And it's not just mine, but it's also Linda O's character, who is the young lady on bass and um, John Baptiste, you know, there were certain mannerisms that really came out through the character that are ours. Well, that's why it's so lifelike and all the more authentic. I mean, in effect, Dorothea is you, your musicianship and your craft. The main character, Joe Gardner, is a middle school band teacher working for his big break as a jazz musician. And that's where your character, Dorothea Williams, comes in. She offers Joe the opportunity to join her quartet at the best jazz club in New York. Tia, how does that compare with your own big break? Mm. You know, now this was the very ironic thing about the character and the development was that I spent significant time in New York, um, New Jersey area. I moved out there in 2001 and um, stayed there for 14 years to specifically pursue my career. And um, so the New York scene, I know extremely well just because I was in there really trying to trying to etch into, you know, my career and the experience of being a jazz musician, a, a black woman who is a saxophonist. And then also, also all of the social and cultural elements that are a part of it and being a, being a band leader. And um, it was ironic because those parts were not discussed um, as far as me playing her character and being the sound behind the music in her, that, in her character. But my life to me in a macro perspective really correlates with, you know, her journey as a, as a woman playing this music and being a leading woman um, who's playing at premier jazz clubs. It, it was just really extraordinary to see how the stories at that point intersected. Did you have one particular big break or was your success more on a trajectory? Oh, wow. It truly has been a series of breaks, but I would say probably the most notable um, to the general public is, of course, the gig with Beyonce, and which is ironic because that's a different genre. <laughs> Prior to that, though, I was playing with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. I thought that was a big deal. I, I would say so. That's a big damn deal. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and then also, you know, playing with the great late uh, Ralph Peterson starting in 2004 and then really starting my own group. Like when I first moved out to New York in 2001, to me, my big break was the culmination of the smaller breaks and the lessons that it really bestowed upon me, which has led me to, you know, today and different opportunities such as Pixar. You mentioned Beyonce. You also played with Aretha Franklin. (laughs) Were those the most memorable gigs? 
Yes, th- those are some of the most memorable. The thing about it is playing with the Aretha Franklin, I was a part of um, uh, the Black Girls Rock. It was a group. It wasn't my quartet. So um, I remember right before the performance, we met and um, we had prayer all together, but it wasn't like I got a chance to really sit in fellowship with her. But either way, like playing with Aretha Franklin, performing with Natalie Cole, of course, meeting, just meeting Wayne Shorter and, and Herbie Hancock. And I was actually supposed to perform with him last year before the pandemic shut down. Performing with Terry Lynn Carrington and, and actually um, being a good friend of hers now. And she produced my last nominated um, Grammy nominated album. I know she's been on, on this show, which is great. Um, but yeah, to me, those are those are the big breaks and. A lot of them kind of come to the idea of, well, the big break is actually those. For me, a big break is having a goal point or a dream or just something that you want to attain. And you're able to not only tap into it, but you're able to go exceedingly above and beyond as far as the relationship that you may or a new opportunity that breeds from that opportunity. And I would say in more cases than not, all of all of my breaks have really materialized into so many abundant blessings. Did you receive personal emails, um, recognition from people who viewed the movie? If I were to receive at least a dollar from everyone who called, emailed, text, congratulated, um, I'd probably be a millionaire by now. <laughs> The response was really tremendous, like on social media, Instagram, Facebook. It was really abundant of um, of, of blessings and, and love that people showed. So I would just I would love for half of those individuals to come in a jazz club and, <laughs> and just be there. They don't even have to clap. <laughs> I was hoping that this movie might be a gateway for very young people. I mean, young kids to jazz. Oh, definitely. This is something that's near and dear to me because, of course, I'm an educator. I teach at Berklee College of Music. But even before then, like, I think it's extremely transformational to see a woman playing a non-conventional instrument, like a a non-conventional, just functioning in the world in a non-conventional way um, to where society has presented and for little girls to see a little Asian trombone player and then also a bass player who's a woman or a black woman who's playing the saxophone does not make it taboo anymore. And yeah, and to me that the subliminal reconstruction of what our narrative has been and how we have shown up in history, because even jazz history books that are written about jazz, unfortunately, unless it's a woman in jazz book, you're not really going to see many women present outside of a lot of the vocalists. And then like Mary Lou Williams, uh, of course, Bessie Smith and some other key figureheads. So I'm saying all this to say that it puts it in a subconscious forefront for our younger children as to not only what is possible, but also not defaming those who are already in those positions. So young young men who are in those positions, it's not going to be taboo for them to have a young woman playing the saxophone right next to them. So it becomes less of a, just less of an, an issue, like a social conversation and more of the integrated part of the, the fabric of this music that we're playing. Women in jazz, for the most part, has been confined to singers. It's an example of how sexist the genre has been because a woman's center stage singing romantic songs is still sort of an object of desire. And it's very different with instrumentalists. This is not to say that the jazz singers, that pantheon of great jazz singers, that those women aren't stupendous musicians, but they didn't have the option. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, women didn't pick up horns in those days. Let's talk about your work as a music professor. I read that you are launching an exchange program between the Berklee College of Music in Boston and Spelman College here. What is your hope for students participating in this program? Yeah, I I feel that, and this is a, an extension of your last statement, but I feel that we have always been present throughout history. And it's about giving the level of visibility and then the platforms, because throughout the history of jazz, women have always been at the root and at the forefront of, you know, creativity and, um, and innovation. So with that, the Spelman Berkeley um, exchange program is, Nothing other than an exchange between Berkeley and Spelman. And what I saw at Berkeley for the past eight years of teaching there is that there are young Black women in particular, but just students who could truly benefit from being in a HBCU, historically Black college and university, to get the strength of the cultural perspective and experience. And a couple of students um, who have graduated really kind of allowed for this idea to come to pass for me. So I'm like, I wish you're strong here, but you could be stronger in this, in this area. Also graduating from Spelman a while back, but I, I realized that a lot of my friends uh, who were conservatories, they didn't have the cultural experience and then vice versa. I was at Spelman and I felt like I really had to create my own opportunities musically because the program wasn't as strong as I would have liked. So I was sitting in a lot. So I'm saying all of that to say <laughs> it's been a passion project of mine to create this exchange program that will allow for young women to go to Spelman and have that cultural experience and then also musical experience um, out at Spelman and vice versa. Young ladies at Spelman who really want to delve into the depths of music and the different parts of the music industry, they can come to Berkeley for a semester. We're going to start off actually with a semester, but a semester and, and be able to become a part of that, that climate. Um, so that essentially it's all about well-roundedness, you know, and being able to offer diverse perspectives and a certain level of excellence across the board, no matter what it is that they desire to do. So broadening their territory, essentially. I know there are several things on your calendar for 2021. Can you give us a few highlights? Yes, probably most um, close to me now is I'm doing a collaboration. It's an online subscription with Jeff Coffin, who plays saxophone with Dave Matthews Band, and the great Kirk Whalum, uh, who plays tenor as well. And we put together basically an educational subscription for saxophone. It's called the Sax Loft. So it's going to be hundreds of videos that individuals can sign on to and get instruction. It's, it's basically an online version of a school, a saxophone school. So I'm really excited about that. And then I'm also in the process of writing for my next album, which is going to feature some very special guests. And it's going to be a little bit of a change from what I've been doing, which is exciting. <laughs> it's scary at the same time. <laughs> Well, how so? What kind of change? Well, I think the genre is going to be different. The production is not going to be straight ahead jazz. There are, of course, going to be jazz elements, but it's going to be a heavy performance, potentially like R&B-esque slash funk. And I want to sing on it. Oh, um, and I also want to do like a dance video. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you work you worked with Beyonce. So now you've got it down, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I got it down. I'm going to have to get some, <laughs> some lessons. But I, I'm working on it. Definitely working on it. <laughs> Tia Fuller, this has been delightful. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> jazz saxophonist Tia Fuller. She performed the music for Dorothea, the sassy saxophonist in the Pixar animated film Soul.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Kevin Gillies stepped down as artistic director of Dad's Garage Comedy Theater in late 2019. Since that time, he's been involved with producing a film comedy featuring adult actors with special needs. Famous comedic actors Colin Mockery and Amber Nash share the screen with local actor and Special Olympics competitor Luke Davis. Luke is here now via Zoom with Kevin Galise. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. It's so great to be back with you. Thank you, Lois. Oh, great to have you here. Kevin, why is working with special needs actors particularly important to you? My younger brother has a developmental disability, and so um, I've just had a lot of exposure to that community and I guess a bit of a soft spot because I have such a personal connection. So when I first um, got the opportunity to work with Luke, um, I just was really inspired. He's a really, really great actor and just a great friend now. And so um, this is a very personal and special project for me. How long have you been working on putting together the feature-length films spotlighting actors with disabilities? Well, I guess I guess about three years now, this project has kind of been coming together. Wow. Can you give us a synopsis of how to ruin the holidays? Uh, Sure, yeah. This is a film about a comedian, a struggling comedian, who reluctantly returns home for the holidays, and she has to kind of deal with a very eccentric family, and it's kind of driving her nuts, but ultimately she has to face a life-changing decision uh, regarding her brother, who does have special needs. This film is a successor to the Dad's Garage TV short. That was awesome. Luke, please tell us what it meant for you to perform in that first film as a lead actor. That was a lot of fun, and it was such an honor to be part of that. So... I really enjoyed doing it and watching our finished product on the big screen when we had our world premiere at Dad's Garage and then later on at the MJCCA. Yeah, very exciting. And now you're going to be in this film with two comedy stars, Colin Mockery and Amber Nash. Yeah. Luke, would you describe your character in this film, How to Ruin the Holidays? I would say he's pretty much just like me, like my own personality except for of course with the drinking and smoking or doing (laughs) drugs but um, he's just a loving person and very affectionate and just wants to enjoy life and have fun as well as be able to 
be with his friends and family and he has a strong relationship i'd say with his sister as well as his dad it sounds like that's very much you except for the bad habits <laughs> of smoking and drinking too much i'm glad that that your character has the best of your qualities and you don't have the worst of his <laughs> right <laughs> Kevin, you address serious topics, employment issues, parental death. How do you balance those themes with comedy in this movie? Well, you know, Lois, I've always felt like the best um, work uh, has the strongest contrast within it. So if you want to tackle really weighty issues, then in my opinion, it's always best if you can do that with a lot of laughter and joy mixed in as well. So that's what I really tried to do with this project is create something that kind of ping pongs, you know, in one moment, there might be a really kind of serious, um, important conversation happening. And the next, you know, it's hijinks, right? (laughs) (laughs) The Kickstarter campaign begins this week. But when are you hoping to release the film? Well, if all goes well with the Kickstarter, um, then we will be shooting in December. And then hopefully the film will be out by the following uh, December. That would be the ideal timeline. I read that you plan to produce the entire film with a budget of only $150,000? That sounds like a huge undertaking. How can you achieve that? Well, a lot of the people that are coming on board, you know, like Amber and uh, Colin, and uh, I know this wasn't in the press release, uh, but it's kind of more of a late breaking. Henry Zabrowski from Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell has uh, signed on to the cast as well. But with all of these folks coming on board, they're working for the lowest legal amount that they're allowed to so that they can support the production. They want to see people like Luke get a platform. Uh, And so they're kind of coming on board to support. So that really helps. And that kind of goes its way down throughout the whole team, whether it's the directors, producers, uh, a huge amount of our team are basically doing this as a labor of love because they want to see neurodiversity represented, you know? That's great. This question is for both of you. How will this film help audiences better understand people with special needs? I feel like I have a a different perspective to share because I grew up with my brother who's got a developmental disability and, and so I just have a kind of a unique perspective on it. I think a lot of times in film and TV, we get kind of a really standardized portrayal, you know? What do you think are the biggest misconceptions of people with disabilities that you see on TV and film? Well, just like any group of people, there's a spectrum of personalities. And yet for some reason, when we go into the world of film and TV, we just get one personality, which is kind of the very loving, very sweet, blink, blink, couldn't hurt a fly. And of course that personality type is out there. I'm not denying that, but it's not uh, really reflective of like the, the breadth of personality type. And so that's why in ours, you know, uh, we've got a character who curses. Uh, he drinks, you know, it's kind of some of these behaviors that you're not used to seeing. But from my experience in real life, that's real. So you believe this film can help audiences understand that people with special needs are not to be treated as young children. That's really what I'm trying to show. Yeah. Uh, What do you think, Luke? Do you see that in the script? Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely that he's treated just like everybody else and that even though he is autistic like I am, that they don't look at him that way. They just see him as one of them. 
basically, that he's no different than they are. And that's how it should be, whether you are special needs or not, that you're still human. You deserve to be treated with respect and as an adult. Yeah, that's right. Kevin, I think it's fantastic that you and Amber, Colin, Luke are involved in what sounds like it will be a fantastic film. Wishing you loads of luck, and I can't wait to see how to ruin the holidays. Uh, well, thank you for the support, Lois, and uh, I hope all your listeners will go to howtoruintheholidaysmovie.com, which will take them right to our Kickstarter if they want to support this type of project being made. That's Garage, improv artist, director, and writer Kevin Gillies with actor Luke Davis. You can find out more information about their Kickstarter project and How to Ruin the Holidays on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're in the middle of National Poetry Month. A poet could hardly ask for a more visible podium than a presidential inauguration. Since January 20th, 23-year-old Amanda Gorman has become known to millions around the globe after reading her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Harris. In 2013, Richard Blanco was the poet at President Obama's second inaugural ceremony. He was the first Latino, the first immigrant, and the first gay person to serve as the inaugural poet. When I spoke with Richard Blanco in 2019 about his book, How to Love a Country, he talked about the impact of that national attention on his career. I mean, the impact is just across the board in every facet of my life. Um, on a very personal note, you know, that moment uh, just felt like this sort of having finally have a, a place at the American, at the proverbial American table in some ways. I, being Cuban-American and gay, I always felt I wasn't really quite sure that I was part of that American narrative that I saw on, you know, the Brady Bunch and the TV shows. So that was uh, that was beautiful in that sense, and, and to be able to be honored in that way, but also uh, to represent so many people like myself that probably have felt not part of the narrative or on the margins of that narrative. So that was a beautiful, beautiful gift of the inauguration. Aside from that, in terms of my career and in terms of writing itself, it changed. Um, well, obviously, you can't imagine career. I mean, I'm, it's been over six years, and I'm still travel 70% of my time. So it really was a game changer. But uh, it also changed what I write about um, or gave me permission to write about things I had never written about before. I mean, my concerns were always about home and place and identity and belonging, but more from a sort of an, an autobiographical sphere and having such a public moment such a public role and uh, uh, as is the inauguration, I kind of stepped into the shoes of, uh, you know, the civic role of the poet. Now, the poet uh, uh, that's a little more socially conscious, and that's what my book is about. It's called How to Love a Country, and it really deals with all the issues that affect us collectively, mm -hmm. um, which include me, of course, uh, but mm -hmm. thinking about how, what is the, you know, sort of more of the poetry of the we than the poetry of the I. So that uh, the inauguration gave me also sort of a new, a new direction for my writing, which is also a wonderful gift. Well, clearly, President Obama thought this story, your story, is as American as everyone else's stories and therefore important to showcase. You mentioned How to Love a Country, your book. Would you read one of the poems that appears specifically complaint of El Rio Grande. Sure, sure, I'd love to. This is a poem, of course, uh, as you can imagine from the title, 
deals with uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. And I was uh, trying to think about how to uh, sort of approach this topic, this uh, social political issue that's been going around since I was a kid, right? Um, and so I decided that artistically I would speak in the voice of the river, sort of the river sh spreading blame evenly on all humanity for the absurdity of borders and, uh, and thinking about how we sort of divide the world and, um, and ourselves. And, and when we really think about the U.S.-Mexican border, if there is a border, um, it's really about, you know, 800 miles wide. This is a region that has really uh, of people that have shared have a shared history and culture and whatnot. And so this this absurdity of how you know you cross some imaginary line or, or you cross a river and suddenly you're in this whole other place and a whole other concept of a uh, uh, cultural concept or whatnot. When in reality, we know that borders aren't that neat. So yes, this is in the voice of the river. Complaint of El Rio Grande. I was meant for all things to meet, to make the clouds pause in the mirror of my waters, to be home to fallen rain that finds its way to me, to turn eons of loveless rock into lovesick pebbles and carry them as humble gifts back to the sea, which brings life back to me. I felt the sun flare, praised each star flocked about the moon long before you did. I breathed air you'll never breathe, listened to songbirds before you could speak their names, before you dug your oars into me, before you created the gods that created you. Then countries, your invention, maps jigsawing the world into colored shapes, caged in bold lines to say you're here, not there, you're this, not that, to say yellow isn't red, red isn't black, black, not white, to say mine, not ours, to say war and believe life's worth is relative. You named me, Big River, drew me, blue, thick, to divide, to say spick and Yankee, to say wetback and gringo. You split me in two, half of me us, the rest them. But I wasn't meant to drown children, hear mother's cries, never meant to be your geography, a line, a border, a murderer. I was meant for all things to meet, the mirrored clouds and suns tingle, bird songs and the quiet moon, the wind and its dust, the rush of mountain rain and us. Blood that runs in you is water flowing in me, both life and the truth we know, we know, to be one in one another. Oh, that poem feels so immediate and yet so timeless. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, and, and I think that's why I, I chose, you know, I chose to speak in the rivers. The river, um, you know, river has no owner. There's no deed. And so um, borders in the end, um, you know, are... Uh, <laughs> In a way, let's be honest, there, there are a lot of borders are maintained in a way to maintain social political power, right? Um, to maintain wealth and, and whatnot. So I kind of wanted the river to speak in that, in that immediacy, right? It's very powerful. How would you characterize the work that makes up how to love a country? Well, um, it's a mosaic of three kinds of poems. Um, one was from an old, older project, which was a fine press book uh, and a collaboration with the photographs of Jacob Hessler. And it was 12 poems, 12 photographs, and on the theme of borders, uh, all kinds of borders, uh, not just physical borders, but psychological borders, borders of uh, socioeconomics, incarceration. And so, and so there's a lot of those poems that speak directly to these um, sort of really a core social political issues that we're still dealing with, um, including, of course, race and gender and all the rest. And then there's a, a third of it is has to do with a lot of the commissioned or occasional poems that I've been writing throughout the last six years. For example, a Freedom to Marry poem, which is called um, Until We Could, which was commissioned by Freedom to Marry and was uh, produced as a short film uh, poem that I wrote for uh, Silicon Valley for the Tech Awards. Um, um, a poem that I wrote for the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in, in Havana, Cuba, that I was asked to 
to write and read. And so they also have sort of more of a political angle, but they're also tied to occasions or tied to sort of certain moments. The Pulse shooting, the Pulse tragedy poem, the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas or Parkland shooting. So those are those poems that I've been writing on my own as, again, thinking about my civic duty as a poet to bring to the table of the conversation that poetry can can initiate, right? Or the dialogue that poetry can initiate. And then the third of the poems, because I wanted them also to ground it, I didn't want to run away from my own bi- autobiography, are some of those same issues, but grounded in more personal autobiographical story or narrative, right? One example being a poem that was just published a couple of weeks ago in the uh, New Yorker about my father, and it's called My Father in English, and deals with his, his struggles with learning English and his struggles with coming to this country and whatnot and his triumph um, and also his his uh, his sort of sense of loss as well. So so there's a slew of those poems. But ultimately, uh, as the title uh, suggests, How to Love a Country is really is, is a statement and it's also a question mark because at the end of the day, all, every poem is sort of struggling to, uh, struggling or celebrating or maybe those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, on what is country and how do we engage with it and how do we have a conversation with some of the things that are happening or have happened in our past? How do we uh, dive into our history to learn our present? Um, How do we um, personally and both collectively uh, deal with this idea of nationhood, right? So... Mm. So in general, it's that it's um, it's that kind of book. The central question is ultimately, who are we as Americans, and how do we belong, and how do we connect, and and to to individually to our country, and also collectively as a people. When you spoke with Terry Gross on Fresh Air in 2013, you talked about your relationship with America, and how complicated that relationship is for immigrants and children of immigrants. A lot has happened in this country since then, and I'm sure your feelings have evolved as well. Would you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's been, you know, obviously an evolution of, well, not evolution, but sort of different phases. Um, Of course, growing up as a child of immigrants, I think there's a a kind of misunderstanding that that children of immigrants immediately embrace their given culture. And the reality, of, I think in most cases, certainly in mine, is that really it was a process of a uh, sort of a cultural coming of age, right? Because whatever your parents do, if they, they're dancing salsa, you want to listen to ACDC. If they're doing this, you want, if they're doing X, you want to do Y. This is just mm-hmm. sort of a general, uh, a, a sort of a, a more natural sort of response to running away from what your parents represent, right? But all the while, this is imprinting in you, right, and and becoming part of your makeup. So, um, you know, in my early 20s, I hit that big wall, that big existential wall of, holy moly, where am I from? And in order to know where I'm going, right, that big Mm -hmm. question that hits us. And so, actually, that's when I started writing and started really discovering and appreciating and diving into and investigating all my Cuban heritage and roots, including my family. I had a huge, huge, huge family that was still in Cuba that I had never seen. So I became very uh, connected to Cuba in that way and sort of became sort of then anti-American in a way. I was like, this is my real cultural roots. This is where I belong. And, you know, history has 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 dealt me these cards. Um, and then, um, in a way, I went to Cuba, I went to Cuba a few times, and though it filled in a lot of blanks and answered a lot of questions, there was still half of me that was very American, right? I grew up here, I arrived here when I was 45 days old to the United States. So I also sort of felt I needed to investigate the quintessential America that I thought was the only and the one and only American narrative, which was, again, like, the you know, the Brady Bunch or the Leave it to Beaver and this world that I had never seen because growing up in Miami is so culturally isolated and so monolithic. Uh, I mean, 90 percent of my schoolmates were Cuban and and with parents and like my parents with all very similar stories. So America was also sort of this mythic 
place as was the Cuba that I didn't know. So I moved up to Hartford and taught at uh, Central Connecticut State University and sort of explored what that what what was what, what was that America that that fantasy or that TV version that I thought really existed and of course found out that it didn't <laughs> right yeah <laughs> thank goodness TV has gotten better since I mean I grew up in Chicago and I never knew anyone who had a family like the Brady Bunch or Leave It to Beaver. <laughs> right. Um, right. And and I've heard that from, from many people. And then and then the thing with it is when growing so away from that, you, you know, you didn't even, you really thought that was because you really didn't know any better. <laughs> so it wasn't even that I didn't know anybody like that. It was like I really thought somebody like that really existed, that families like that. And that and that to be an American meant that I had to become that person, right, That or be that family. So then after that, I kind of became, started sort of reaching into really understanding American history and reading revisionist ver- versions of history, not this, you know, the storybook uh, version that they give us in history books, or at least they gave us back then, and started becoming like really anti-American, right? <laughs> like, like sort of like, how dare you, you know, how dare this country, this is, you know, these are the ideals that my parents as immigrants believed in, and like, how, what, why do we have such this ugly history? And then uh, I kind of sort of had to explore that. Eventually, I said, well, maybe I'm not American, maybe I'm not Cuban, maybe home is Venice or Paris or London. And I started thinking about home and belonging and place in a more cosmopolitan way and uh, a more cosmopolitan sort of take on the idea of home. Um, and that didn't quite answer my question. And so um, really it wasn't until the inauguration, uh, as I sort of mentioned briefly, that I finally felt this sense of of belonging and realizing that that my narrative is a little chubby gay kid from a working class immigrant family in the suburb of Miami and a Cuban immigrant, that that was part of the American story, right? That my mother who grew up in a dirt floor home in Cuba, that was part of the American story. That all of our individual stories are what make up the American narrative if we think of of the very definition of democracy and our own motto of this country out of the many one. I felt finally I had arrived. <laughs> but then the story of home belonging is again like you said is very complicated and um, when I got asked to to write the poem for the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in Cuba and when relationships with Cuba were starting to open up another set of questioning set in well I was like thinking well maybe I can have finally this relationship with the island and its people in a more authentic and and legitimate way and um, and that's when it hit me I was like all the while, uh, now I'm, by now I'm in my mid-40s, I thought I had to pick and choose. I thought I had to be either the Brady Bunch or Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> and I realized I don't have to pick. This is We're living in a world where you don't have to pick anymore. You don't have to choose one or the other. We are all these things, and we are connected. It's part of what uh, How to Love a Country speaks to also is to let go of all those sort of inherit those, those kinds of boundaries and walls we put around ourselves to think well what is an american i mean what's the difference you know what does that really mean you know like aren't we just citizens of the world and and to think beyond the boundaries of nationhood and patriotism and those kinds of things so um that's where i'm at now i'm sort of embracing the idea of looking at myself as a global citizen who can adapt and um, and take on and, and incorporate whatever it is that I feel I uh, belong to. Hey, if a river shouldn't have boundaries, why should you? Right, exactly. <laughs> Richard, you spoke about civic responsibility. Ultimately, what do you think is the role of a poet? One thing that I've always adhered to was the idea of the poet as emotional historian that in some ways my job is to record the emotional history uh, or histories of what it is like to live in a time and in a place. And then so ultimately a poem is about connecting to an emotional core of some of some kind and giving giving real names, real lives, real faces to these social political issues that can get very abstracted and I think when, when a poet bothered, like something like the river, you know, that's a new way of thinking about something because it's giving a voice to something that isn't this, the same old 24-hour newsreel sound bites, right? 
what I try to do with my poetry is uh, to open up another conversation, uh, the way that art in general and poetry in particular can do, which is to look at the gray area, uh, to look at the nuances, to look at the emotional truths that no, that people are afraid to speak of. So. I see my role as a poet as sort of a, um, not, a not as an instigator, but a, uh, a, in some ways like a, a bridge builder. Um, ironically, I'm an engineer as well, but <laughs> um, as a bridge builder to connect people to other thoughts, uh, other people, uh, other ways of thinking, other emotions that perhaps they have not, um, they have not been able to encounter and the poem becomes a catalyst. Um, I think poets and poetry, uh, you know, so much happens through our lives that we're not, we're not really consciously aware how it's affecting it, us. And I think uh, a poem makes us pause and think about something. It makes us put down the iPhone, it makes us put down the tablet, it makes us turn off the TV, and it makes us just rethink and, and, and take the time to look beyond the expected answer. And so that's what I try to do with my poetry, is to offer, offer another kind of questioning, another line of reasoning. Richard Blanco speaking about his 2019 collection of poetry, How to Love a Country. He was the featured poet at President Obama's 2013 inauguration. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., author Becky Albertalli will tell us about her new young adult novel, Kate in Waiting, a hilarious celebration of friendship and love letter to musical theater. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.